Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve, and welcome to the second edition of the Spy Talk podcast. We're going to be talking about Russia and Afghanistan, and we're also going to talk about what it's like to work in a U.S. intelligence agency. When you think of what CIA does, you think of case officers, the guys who go out and find the foreigners who have access to information that we need, and they try to convince them to share those secrets with the U.S. government. Well, those people, in order to do their job, they're trained to be really good manipulators, like the best manipulators in the world. And so that's what you walk into when you go into work at CIA. That's going to be a great interview, Gene. I'm really looking forward to hearing it later in the show. It reminds me of a story or a crack that a former top CIA officer made to me years ago that if the agency was as good manipulating foreign adversaries as it was each other inside the building, we'd have no big problems. And we will see if she agrees with you. And speaking of the CIA, you interviewed several former officials for an article you just wrote for Spy Talk called Putin just doesn't care. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we have, of course, the Alexei Navalny situation uh, uh, following, you know, his jailing, following his poisoning. Um, as one CIA officer put it to me, if you want to get rid of somebody, you can just do it with a hammer in a back alley. Poisoning attracts a lot of attention and the breadcrumbs almost inevitably lead back to Moscow. So, so was he trying to send a message to somebody? Is that why he's doing it? According to CIA officers I talked to, one in particular, Daniel Hoffman, who was former CIA station chief in Moscow, he's really sending a message to his own intelligence services. It's kind of a morale boost to carry out the spectacular esoteric assassination abroad, oddly as it might seem to us. He's telling them, we're back. We're like the old KGB. We're going to be tough, ruthless, no holds barred. And of course, Putin is KGB or was KGB. So what should the right. U.S. do about this? Well, one of the uh, former officers I talked to, Jack Devine, who spent over three decades combating the Russians and the KGB back during the Cold War, said, said to me, enough's enough. It's time to really uh, sit down with them and give them a very stark warning to tell Putin's agents, look, you've crossed a red line. You're interfering in our elections. You're interfering in the political processes in several other countries. You've tried a coup in Eastern Europe. You're undermining Ukraine and you're carrying out assassinations abroad. This is just too much. Uh, it's a gentleman's game to a point and you've gone way beyond the boundary. We gotta have a sit down with them and tell them to stop or they're gonna pay consequences. And you can read the full article on SpyTalk's Substack page. And the Russians, by the way, pulled out of Afghanistan in the late 80s. Now it is time for the U.S. to do so. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. 
So the rubber has hit the road in Afghanistan. We've talked about getting out for years and years. Trump tried to do an abrupt pullout when he was in office. And now Biden has set the date, September 11th, the anniversary, of course, of the uh, 911 terror attacks on New York and the Pentagon. I talked to Lisa Curtis about this this week. She's one of those Washington denizens that people outside the Capitol may not be familiar with, but she's a well-known figure in Washington for her expertise on South Asia, particularly India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. After decades at the CIA, State Department, White House National Security Council. And so people pay attention when she says she's very worried about what comes next in Afghanistan, not just the military forces pulling out, but the CIA is also packing up to leave on September 11th. So Lisa Curtis, the top general in Afghanistan, Austin Miller, said over the weekend that Afghan security forces must be ready, quote unquote, to take over when we are gone in September. It seems to me that they haven't been ready to take over for some 20 years now. So what's the situation? What's the outlook? Well, I think General Miller's statement uh, about the Afghan National Security Forces must be ready uh, is not reassuring at all. Uh, We know that General Miller, General McKenzie, General Milley, and even Secretary Austin didn't support going to uh, zero troops. Um, The president ignored their advice. And of course, they're going to salute and obey the commander of chief's orders. Uh, But I'm certain they don't feel good about it. You know, this is a security force that we've been fighting and dying with for 20 years. Uh, People haven't focused on the fact that the Afghan security forces have helped take numerous terrorists off the battlefield, uh, including as recently as the last year. And so I know it's, it's frustrating that the Taliban remains so powerful after 20 years of, of U.S. forces being deployed there, but that doesn't mean that our interest in not seeing terrorists reemerge in the country has gone away. So the question is now, how are we going to address the ongoing terrorist threats in the country uh, now that this decision has been made? Well, how are we going to do that? Um, the counter, the, I read over the weekend that the CIA counterterror teams uh, are already being turned over to the Afghans with mixed results. Uh, does this mean that the CIA presence is going to be gone from uh, Kabul uh, and other major uh, uh, towns and cities uh, in the country? Well, it makes it much more difficult for... Uh, CIA operatives to be uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, It's going to be much more difficult for them to collect intelligence um, and coordinate with their Afghan counterparts. Uh, More difficult. They're not going to be able to do that at all. I mean, isn't Afghanistan kind of going to be like an enemy country uh, come September? Well, I think it, it is going to, our space for operating will be decreasing by the day. Um, the Taliban will increasingly take over, you know, more and more parts of the country. Um, it's difficult to say how long it would take for them to, uh, you know, take over a majority of the country, uh, or even, you know, to go into Kabul. There are different assessments. The intelligence community has talked about, you know, 18 months to two years. 
Um, I think it could happen within a year. Uh, so yeah, we have to figure out a plan B. Uh, intelligence collection capabilities are going to be limited. Uh, we'll lose our eyes on capabilities to deal with the threat. Um, we'll no longer be able to cooperate directly with the Afghan security forces. Of course, we'll, we'll have uh, people there with them, but it certainly will not be the same. And it, it, uh, it's going to be a very difficult situation. Uh, one idea that people have been looking at is whether we can, you know, post forces in a nearby country. Well, you know, there's challenges to Pakistan, of course, that we all know about. We had a, uh, a drone base there in Shamsi airfield in Balochistan for several years. But by 2011, when tensions got really high between our two countries, uh, the Pakistanis closed that down. So I doubt they're in any mood to reopen that, particularly with a prime minister like Imran Khan, who, you know, campaigned on the issue of uh, the U.S. getting out of Afghanistan, not conducting drone strikes. So that's going to be difficult. The I, other want get, option, I want to get back to Pakistan and our uh, options for the future. But I, but can you foresee a situation in Kabul like Saigon in uh, 19, April 1975 with uh, U.S. diplomats and CIA people and our Afghan allies? allies flying off the roof of uh, embassy buildings? Well, I don't, I don't think it's going to be exactly like uh, Saigon and, and people flying off the roofs. Um, there has been these you know, ongoing talks that the U.S. negotiator, Ambassador Khalilzad, has been engaged in. Uh, and one of you know, his efforts has been to um, allow U.S. forces to withdraw peacefully uh, in, without being attacked. And of course, there's preparations to meeting any such challenges as well, as you saw the, the aircraft carrier uh, moving toward the region. Um, so the, we do have the capability still uh, to be able to respond if the Taliban do start resuming their attacks against U.S. forces. So I don't foresee that situation, but I think that what you can uh, possibly expect is an exodus of Afghans uh, trying to leave the country. And that's why you have um, congressional members really pushing the Biden administration to quickly grant visas. There's some, you know, 17,000 Afghans, you know, translators, people who have helped us all these 20 years uh, that have applied for um, uh, asylum in the U.S. And uh, they should expedite that process. Uh, that's the least that we can do for mm -hmm. these people that we've been fighting and dying with. And, and we've been essentially dragging our feet for a couple, three administrations now and getting our interpreters into this country through special visa programs. I, I wrote about that 10 years ago, where we weren't really helping Iraqis and Afghans who were uh, in dire security circumstances get here. So uh, it's not so easy to get these uh, uh, friends of ours out like it was easy, quote unquote, in Saigon because there were uh, American ships right offshore. Uh, there's no offshore with Afghanistan. Uh, it, it, it's going to be very difficult to get these 17,000 people out, uh, much less uh, 100,000 or more who might be panicking that their throats are going to be slit by the uh, Taliban, right? So we, we're facing perhaps a chaotic security situation. 
yes, it, it definitely uh, could devolve in into chaos pretty quickly. But I think in the rural areas in particular, where the Taliban have been making advances in any case over the last several years, you'll see uh, people basically uh, bowing, you know, to uh, the Taliban's dictates. They'll they'll see the writing on the wall. And they will, um, mm -hmm. you know, follow the Taliban. Now, the concern that I have is for women, women who've been working in NGOs, promoting uh, human rights, uh, you know, that is going to be difficult because what we saw a few years ago when Kunduz fell to the Taliban for two weeks, the first thing they did was go after women who were working in the non-governmental yeah, organizations. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that is a real concern. But there's one other difference that I want to point out because people are comparing the situation to Vietnam. Um, and of course, you know, uh, we went on, the U.S. went on after the, the debacle there. But this is different. The North Vietnamese didn't support terrorists that want to kill a lot of Americans. People forget that. Just because we're withdrawing, the terrorist threat is not going away. We're not ending the war in Afghanistan. We're ending U.S. involvement in that war. Right. And so when we're withdrawing from the territory of Afghanistan, there's not much we can do about this with, the, you know, F-16s, F-35s, B-52s. Uh, from offshore. I mean, you can't, if you can't win a counterinsurgency on the ground, you're certainly not going to win it with uh, uh, bomb payloads. Uh, they're in the villages, they're in the cities, right? So it's, it's quite a dire situation. Uh, you cannot protect women with B-52s. Isn't that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, again, we can try to, uh, you know, negotiate with the Taliban, you know, provide them carrots, you know, assistance, motivation, you know, removal of their um, members from UN sanctions list. So we, we can try all that, but I'm, I'm a bit skeptical that in the end that will uh, convince them not to um, carry out a revenge campaign about, you know, against those people who have been cooperating with U.S. forces. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be very difficult. We should try, but I don't think we should be overly optimistic that it's going to work. It's not in the uh, Taliban's interest, although they may see it differently. It's not in the Taliban's interest to uh, start massacring women and uh, other opponents of their regime, right? So we could maybe uh, have a straw to hang on there that they'll uh, come to their senses and see that joining the international community is in their interest. But uh, critics of this argument that we have to stay in Afghanistan to prevent uh, resurgence of Al Qaeda, they say Al Qaeda and other militant groups, they don't, they don't need Afghanistan. They've got Somalia, they've got other places uh, in Africa uh, where they've made a lot of gains and they can mount attacks on uh, Europe and the US from there. What do you say to that? Well, this is what I say to that. Look, if, if the Taliban uh, plays this victory narrative, which they will, uh, supported by al-Qaeda, that they not only were able to push out the U.S., but 40 other NATO nations from the country, that's going to be an inspiration to extremists across the globe. And you're likely to see a, a convergence on Afghanistan. Uh, so it may be that they, they can spread out, but Afghanistan will again become a very appealing place to be. If This is the only country in the world where you have a fundamentalist Islamist regime, or you may have very soon, controlling an entire country. 
And that's what made it appealing in the 1990s when the Taliban controlled Afghanistan. That's why Osama bin Laden went there from Sudan in 1996. Uh, It was, it's a regime that's very friendly to international terrorists sharing the same ideology. And uh, even if the Taliban themselves don't have um, international aspirations, they certainly are willing to house and you know, provide haven uh, to those who do. Speaking of regimes that are favorable to uh, terrorists, let's talk about Pakistan. There's been a recent resurgence or a growth of pro-Al-Qaeda militant groups. They're marching in the streets. There have been other activities going on. Uh, so, uh, is, uh, what's our situation, our security situation in regard to Pakistan? Well, I think it's not surprising that as the Taliban feel emboldened and, uh, see that the U S is withdrawing troops, that that inspires, like I said, other terrorist groups. And many of those do operate in Pakistan. The Tariqi Taliban, Pakistan, TTP, uh, is one such group. So I think, you know, Pakistan um, will, you know, pay a price for, you know, trying to ride the tiger, trying to support some terrorist groups, but then also, you know, trying to um, act like it's supportive of the U.S. at the same time. It's just not possible. If you support uh, one terrorist group, you're basically providing a conducive environment for other terrorists to operate. So I think, you know, probably Pakistan's leadership is concerned, um, but they, they really um, probably should have considered this uh, earlier when mm-hmm. we were trying to gain greater cooperation and explain uh, some of the challenges. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, sometimes countries don't really um, look ahead or do what's best for their own strategic interests. Right. Lisa, you've been worried about the situation in Southwest Asia for a long time, in particular, Pakistan, of course, Afghanistan, which come as a package, a package deal of doom, you might say. Um, You were in the Trump White House when the president um, announced in an almost whimsical way that we were going to leave all we're going to take all troops out uh, within months. What was you remember that day when you heard about that? Uh, I'm suspecting that the president did not confer with you on that decision. Um, what was your reaction when you heard that? Well, I think President Trump often, uh, you know, made foreign policy by tweet and surprised you know many of his advisors on many different occasions. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, U.S. military leaders at the time were also counseling caution and were, uh, you know, trying to prevail on the president to understand the dangers. And I think they probably did explain that, um, look, if, if you're responsible for withdrawing U.S. forces and that opens the way for another terrorist attack on the U.S., then you'll essentially be, be blamed for that terrorist attack. So I think there, there was the same military advice that Biden was probably given um, President Trump was also given. So it's, it's unfortunate, but I think the, um, you know, there is this frustration uh, among the political leadership in particular that we've not been able to prevail over the Taliban over the last 20 years. But even so, we continue to have 
concerns about the terrorist environment in Afghanistan. So unless you have a very strong plan B in place first, uh, then you know you, you are really setting yourself up for a lot of risk. It's not calculated risk. This decision was not made um, with calculated risk. I think it was it was made um, only looking at the fact that we had been there 20 years rather than consider what could happen if we fully withdraw. Well, we've been raising these concerns. People of all sorts of political stripes from right to the left have been raising these concerns for many years now. And now the rubber is literally hitting the road. So that's a done deal. Come September 11th, we're going to be completely out of there. So give us an idea of the constellation of U.S. forces uh, in regard to uh, the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. What do you see? Do you see an aircraft carrier on permanent station uh, in the Persian Gulf to uh, continue airstrikes in Pakistan, uh, in Afghanistan? Is that what you see? What else? Well, like I said, we're going to have to work out some arrangements with another country. You know, maybe it's a Central Asian country, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, where we have forces close by that can be, you know, inserted into Afghanistan. Uh, well, that you, seems to be a non-starter, too, uh, in the stands. Uh, our, our security situation there is quite fraught as well, right? So the, the prospect of keeping, uh, say, CIA strike teams uh, in uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and so on, is, 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 is that, 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 that's not really a viable option, is it? I wouldn't say it's impossible, particularly in Uzbekistan. We've really improved our relations with uh, President Mirziyoyev over the last few years, um, and he's seeking U.S. investment. He's seeking better relations with the U.S. Uh, they've been particularly helpful, the Uzbeks, um, in trying to cooperate with our strategy in Afghanistan. So I wouldn't rule it completely out uh, to have some kind of an agreement with the Uzbeks. You rightly say there have been problems in the past. We remember what happened with Karshi Karnabad K2, the base that was there um, right after the 9-11 the attacks, but then was closed down by the Uzbeks in uh, 2005 mm -hmm. uh, after our criticism of human rights abuses that were um, mm -hmm. uh, the government committed uh, against those involved in the mm -hmm. uprising in Andijan. So I, I grant you that it's difficult, but I don't think it's impossible. Mm. Uh, and what about uh, this prospect of having CIA counterterror teams based in Pakistan uh, working against uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan? Well, the prospects of that don't seem to be very good either, right? No, I, I would put that, uh, those prospects of that being something we can do as, as close to zero. Uh, again, I think that there, there's too much water under the bridge there. And particularly with um, the current Pakistani prime minister, um, I think that would be extremely difficult. Uh, so I, I think that, that that would be something that would be difficult to envision. I guess anything's possible at this stage. Um, we have seen uh, uh, the General Bajwa, the chief of army staff, uh, talk about, you know, wanting to rein in some of these militants, um, you know, not sure that he's supported by the rest of his core commanders in that endeavor, but at least he personally uh, sees some of the problems I think that Pakistan is facing 
with its economy and such by continuing to support these groups. So again, I think that's I think that's more difficult than the Uzbek uh, potential solution. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think I think it would be very very difficult. Speaking of uh, frightening scenarios in Pakistan, some longstanding observers of Pakistan have raised the frightening poss- possibility to meet, la- meet lately of uh, Pakistan falling to an Islamist coup, um, uh, which would is kind of unthinkable for a long time, uh, you know, sort of a faraway potential danger. And now, uh, you know, they see that actually this might be a possibility in the near future. We're talking about a nuclear armed state here falling into Islamist hands. What's your take on that? Well, again, I would point to what we have seen from General Bajwa, which is a pretty sensible uh, approach uh, to these issues. Uh, now, if, if um, like I said, if you know the core commanders supporting him uh, would would have a different view, then then I think there would be some problems. Uh, but I think what we've seen over the last several years. Is Pakistan, you know, gradually get a grip on some of these groups? But I grant you that in the last few weeks, we've seen some alarming signals that they're feeling emboldened and uh, may, you know, press their press their goals again. So I think we have to watch that space carefully. I, I don't see anything happening on an immediate basis, but uh, there certainly is grounds for concern when you see the Taliban being emboldened and you know, perhaps on the verge of of taking over in Afghanistan, that is certainly going to embolden other groups that threaten Pakistan and and how Pakistan is going to manage that uh, we have yet to see. And and one just hopes that we don't go back to the time period, you remember 2009, when the Taliban took over part of uh, northern Pakistan, the Swat Valley, Uh, that was extremely concerning. Uh, so one would hope that we don't go back to that kind of situation. I suspect that uh, this is a topic that uh, occupies the minds of people at the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad. Uh, they are probably very closely monitoring the situation, particularly in regard to control of nuclear weapons. Is that correct? Um Yes, you know, we're always uh, closely monitoring the situation. Anytime you have a country where, you know, one of the largest um, nuclear weapons states, uh, frankly, in the top five, uh, at the same time, they have more terrorist groups operating from their territory than perhaps any other country in the world. So when you have a combination of those two things, uh, obviously, there, there is a great deal of concern. Um, and again, I, I, I'm really... Um, disappointed that, you know, President Biden didn't take some of these longer term concerns uh, into account when making this decision, the political decision to go to zero troops. And, you know, we had the support from NATO. NATO was willing to stay, you know, even if we had less troops than NATO, which was the case, of course, uh, we had about 3,500. There were about 5,500 NATO troops. So they were willing to stay. In fact, the Germans, uh, you know, passed a resolution where they were ready to increase their number of troops in Afghanistan just a couple uh, months ago. So I'm certain European and NATO leaders are also very frustrated with this decision. 
you're expecting a kind of doomsday scenario for Kabul at some point? Well, I, I think that um, it's going to be very tough. Um, you know, if you look back 1994, the Taliban kind of slowly rolled in, you know, they took Kandahar first, it took two years before they were able to take Kabul. However, they're very powerful throughout the country. So I think it would take much less time uh, to, to go into Kabul, but it, it depends on uh, how quickly we start to see desertions with the Afghan security forces, you know, if they start deserting posts, um, maybe they hunker down, maybe they hunker down in Kabul and they're able to fend off the Taliban from Kabul only for a little while. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm not optimistic about the situation. There's been some interesting um, talk about if the U.S. could, you know, even if we don't have actual forces on the ground, we could support a Northern Alliance type of rump government in the North, kind of like, you know, Kurdistan in Iraq. Um, so maybe we're moving toward that mm. kind of situation within the next couple of years. Mm. Wow, that's really interesting. So you could see a U.S. supported rump government in the North with a Northern, what used to be called the Northern Alliance, and kind of a an ongoing uh, civil war with the Taliban, uh, which would be largely a, what, a CIA-backed counterinsurgency program. Can you elaborate on your idea for that? Yeah, I think it, it would be, you know, something akin to, you know, the, the U.S. support for the um, SDF, you know, uh, in Syria. Syria. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it would be something similar to that. And I, I'm not saying that that would be the decision that's made. I'm saying some people are talking about that. Um, if, if things get uh, extremely desperate and the U.S. Uh, decides that it would be in the U.S. interest uh, to keep the Taliban from, you know, taking over the entire country. But uh, right now, it seems, you know, the Biden administration is, um, you know, certainly going to withdraw um, and is trying to uh, continue to negotiate with the Taliban to try to moderate their policies. Um, and so they're going to probably try that for a while um, and kind of see where we are in, in a few few months from now. So we, we really are in a state of flux and nobody's really certain what's going to happen. Well, we'll be back and talking to you again in a couple of months, if not sooner, Lisa Curtis. Um, you're one of our top experts on Pakistan, Afghanistan situation. You've been working this problem for a long time. And now we are really hitting the final act of the U.S. and Afghanistan, um, at least a military presence there. And um, there's a lot to worry about. Thanks for coming on Spy Talk podcast to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. doesn't love a good spy thriller.
novelist Alma Katsu drew on her many years as an intelligence analyst for her new novel called Red Widow. The book is about rooting out a mole at the CIA, but it's a little unusual in that the two main characters are women. One, Lindsay, is trying to redeem her career after an illicit affair. The other, Teresa, is motivated by her love of her husband. It's a real departure for Alma Katsu. So Alma, you have written books that have been described as paranormal romance and historical horror, and now a spy novel. Why did you make this pivot? Well, I guess there's a lot of reasons. One is when I started writing, uh, I was still working as a, in the intelligence business, and they really don't like you to write spy novels while you're in the job. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that um, apply to you that don't apply once you retire, such as ethics. You know, they say it's not ethical for you to make money off of something that you know, is, is your job that you're being paid for. And also I was just drawn to those other kinds of stories. You make the CIA sound like a terrible place to work. <laughs> it's full of backbiting, overly ambitious, devious people in your book. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry it came off so heavy handed. I'm hopefully it's the circumstances of the two main characters. Um, you know, I had a long career in intelligence and it was uh, in many ways just, you know, life changing. Of course, I came from a very small town in Massachusetts. Um, you know, a previous era, no internet, really hard to, to learn about the world around you. I came from a kind of disadvantaged family, you know, not very worldly. And um, I, I did not aspire to go into intelligence. I wanted to be a writer, but it was very mysterious back then. How does one become a novelist? You know, in my town, there were no novelists. There was you know, no one, no role models for me. And, but I kept hearing that, you know, you need to have something to write about. You have to live the life. And so when the opportunity came to work for NSA, I thought this is my opportunity to, to have this different life. I never thought I would stay. I thought I'd stay for a couple of years and then I would go back to writing. And lo and behold, I put in over 30 years in the intelligence business because it was fascinating and it gave me the opportunity to do a lot of things, you know, work in technical issues, um, just get involved in so much that, that otherwise I never would have done. Um, having said that, as, as I'm sure you're aware, when you have put a whole career behind you, you get a lot of, um, you get the opportunity to kind of look back and do your own lessons learned. And I realized for all the good things that you get out of a career in intelligence, there's certainly some challenges too. And um, it demands certain things of you when you work in it that you're not aware of when you enter into it. But over time you see, you know, what it costs, what it costs you on an individual level. Are the people who work there as bad as some of the characters in your novel? I'm not talking about the principal characters, but the other people who populate the book. You know, so I, I've worked primarily at two intelligence agencies, NSA and CIA. Two thirds of my career at NSA, one third at CIA. I've also had the opportunity to work in policy in a couple other places, the Office of the Secretary of Defense and State Department. So I have a little bit of, you know, a broad look. And, and specifically for CIA, I would say, no, they're not terrible people. I mean, intelligence and government in general, I'm sure you've run into it. You know, most of the people who go into it have very pure intentions. You know, they're very patriotic. They want to serve the American people. They're not in it for their own, um, you know, self-gratification. They're certainly not in it to enrich themselves. <laughs> um, 
you know, but in any profession, there's always going to be a few people whose motives are, you know, they're self-motivated. They're very ambitious. And maybe that even blinds them to what they're doing sometimes to their coworkers. What makes it really, uh, I think, extra difficult in the intelligence community is that it's the, it's the business of secrets. That's what we do. And so you always accept that you can't be told the whole story. And that gives people... Uh, the opportunity, I think, to deceive and manipulate maybe a little bit more than you would find, uh, you know, elsewhere. Um, and the other thing is, and this was kind of surprising to me when I went to CIA, I'd already had 20 years in at, at NSA at this point. And, you know, the cultures of all the agencies are a little different. And I saw what a unique culture CIA had. And the reason is this, you know, CIA's primary business is what we call human or human intelligence. When you think of what CIA does, you think of case officers, the guys who go out and find the foreigners who have access to information that we need, and they try to convince them to share those secrets with the U.S. government. Well, those people, in order to do their job, they're trained to be really good manipulators, like the best manipulators in the world. And so that's what you walk into when you go into work at CIA. And again, most of them are very good and they understand that that talent, you know, is to be used for in a particular situation, right? But there's some, some of them just can't turn it off and it ruins their lives. You know, they have higher incidences of divorce and alcoholism. They alienate their kids and sometimes they turn that on their coworkers. And that happened to me and I saw it happen to other people. And I'll tell you, when you're in that situation, it's like you're dropped into a shark tank and the shark swivels around and sees you and they come for you. And it's, you know, it's, it's very hard to stop them, especially if sometimes you don't have the support of management. Sounds a little like broadcasting actually. <laughs> So you are a technology person. That's really your field of expertise. And it was interesting to me to read Red Widow and not see a lot of technology. There were none of those gadgets and gizmos that you see in so many other spy novels. In fact, your main character is known as the human lie detector and she relies on reading body language and micro expressions. I was really curious about this. What, you mean why there was no technology yeah. really in the story? Well, beyond computers and right, you know right. the the run of the mill uh, surveillance cameras and microphones and occasional transcripts. So that was for a couple of reasons. One was to avoid you know tripping any wires with the pre-publication review board. They do have to go over your manuscript. You know, that's part of your lifelong obligation. Once you sign that non-disclosure agreement in exchange for getting a top secret clearance you know, and access to all those secrets for the rest of your life. If you write anything that has to do with, with intelligence work, you have to allow the agencies to review it. And since I'm, I still actually, I won't say who, but I do have confidential clients in the government that I still advise on technology matters. You know, that was just something I kind of wanted to avoid. And the second reason, I guess maybe there's three reasons. The second reason is it would have made it a different kind of spy thriller. It would have pushed it into the techno thriller realm. And it might sound kind of silly to listeners, but in the book business, when it comes to marketing and all that kind of stuff, they're very aware of those kinds of, you know, are you falling into a certain subgenre? And I didn't think that was the kind of book that, um, especially for my first spy thriller, I should write. I actually, I would be fascinated to do one down the road, maybe. Um, uh, 
And the third reason is, you know, it kind of has to do with the second. I'm not really sure that that was the kind of book that readers would want to get from a woman, especially a woman who's over 60 years old, where they believe that a woman over 60 year old could understand technology that well. So it also is not um, action packed. There are a couple of scenes where there is some um, physical interaction amongst people, but it's largely um, the sort of everyday work of sitting down and going through files and going through computers and making connections. It's not out there brandishing a gun. Right. Well, you know, over the years, um, when I met with agents and editors, they all said the same thing. Well, we, you know, we're interested in you because you could write what it's really like. You could write a book that shows it how it really is. And I tried writing that book and they said, Alma, nobody wants to see somebody doing their job. So I tried to walk the line because on one hand, you know, when you've been in a business, you want to be authentic. You want it to, to reflect the experiences of the people who are in it, right? You want to honor them and what they do because it's important. And if people could really see what it's like, maybe they would come to value it a little bit more. The truth is, is that a lot of it is more cerebral as opposed to the action-packed things that you see, especially in contemporary spy movies and TV shows. And there's a reason for that. TV, as you know, TV and movies is visual. You can't just show people thinking (laughs) that would be deadly dull. And it's pretty deadly dull in a book, but there are ways to sort of, you know, spice it up and really, you know, usher people into the mind of an analyst. And the other thing, kind of getting back to what I started with is that really is what the job is about. You know, I've told people, you know, your typical spy thriller is the lone hero, you know, sometimes a brooder or an antihero, but the the one guy who can save the day. And so he plunges on, you know, against all odds, overcomes all obstacles. And at the end, it's, you know, the single villain with the bomb or whatever. And the hero runs in and, you know, beats up the bad guy and throws the bomb out the window. Well, in real life, if that's what happened, we would call that an intelligence failure. You're trying to avoid getting to the point where there's a bomb about to explode. You definitely want to avoid a situation where there's only one person, one lone person who can possibly be the answer. That's one thing you learn in intelligence and probably in a lot of other careers that you're replaceable. There's other people who can do your job. It's built in that way, right? So there's no single point of failure. What you want is intelligence is, is to see the problem far out, to come up with a plan that has a series of tributaries in case you need to, and that you nudge and you tweak it along the way so that nothing catastrophic happens. I understand that's not a very engaging or fulfilling or satisfying book to read, So I really tried to sort of walk between the two. But if readers can bear with me with this book, they'll see the next book, which has already been picked up by Putnam, is going to be a lot more action packed. So another way in which your book is non-traditional is that women are the main characters. I mean, traditionally, women have been secondary. Um, They've been, uh, you know, there to add a little fizz and sizz and whatever to the book. But they haven't been at the center of the story. You have two women at the center of the story. Right. I mean, that was very important to me because, you know, in, you see when you work in the business, about half of the people who work in intelligence are women. They hold all the same jobs that men do. We have many, many incredibly competent 
skilled, knowledgeable women leading the intelligence community in many ways. And yet I think for women, we weren't seeing ourselves reflected in the popular culture. It was usually male led or there was, uh, you know, like M was a woman for a while, but she was always being saved by the man. In the James Bond books. Yeah. Right. You know, it was always that sort of perspective where the woman was just sort of a secondary character, a help meet, or um, in some of the historical, uh, you know, that's very popular right now, historical fiction set in World War II or sometimes the early Cold War, where they're showing women in the lead, but it's because they're the outsider. It's because either they have this, again, singular um, skill that nobody else has, so they'll allow her to come into the world of men, or she's some kind of idiot savant that they think, you know, or, you know, she's there to be the honey trap. And again, I, um, it, that's not what it's like for most women. We're a part of the workforce. So we have a woman now as head of, uh, you know, Office of uh, National Intelligence, right? right. Uh, we had a CIA director that was a woman in the last administration. So is there gender equality now in the intelligence community? Well, it's hard for me to say exactly. I've been retired now coming up four years. It's certainly heartening to see more women uh, in the higher levels. I remember when I was younger and at NSA, we always did have a woman here, a woman there. You sometimes got the feeling uh, kind of the same thing, that they were exceptions in some way. Don't expect for that career track to be the norm for you. She's exceptional. She's almost like a man. I mean, that's how they would describe her, right? That that was the, um, in the many highest compliment. In I'm many sorry? businesses, the same yeah. way. Right. That was the highest compliment they could give you. And yet, as for me, I didn't see them as being particular. Like, I remember, I don't want to give any names. One in particular, she was an office director and everyone, I didn't know her personally. Um, I was a SIGINT National Intelligence Officer at the time, so I had to serve all the office directors. So I knew it was only a matter of time before our, our paths crossed. But everyone talked about how you know, how decisive she was and everything. And then I went in to brief her and her office was covered with doilies. <laughs> and, you know, she always wore pink and she just struck me as like the very girly. And why did they pick her to be an office director? Like I sometimes used to wonder if they deliberately picked certain women who I don't want to say would fail, but maybe not succeed in quite the way that some of us would have liked to have seen. So... Is it important to have women engaged in intelligence collection and analysis? Absolutely. Um, you know, I can say that uh, looking back on my career at several agencies, uh, many of the best analysts I work with, you know, best people on the technical level, but also in management have been women, like in, at very strategic times in very strategic positions there's been a woman who really made a pivotal difference. And I think uh, partly it's because they know how to negotiate more broadly with the workforce, you know, in order to get uh, something really big done. Uh, so for instance, I'm thinking specifically back in, oh, when was it, the late 1990s when NSA was going through what was known as the transformation. And we were making the jump from analog to digital, which was a complete overhaul and revamping of every way NSA did its business. Huge, huge, huge. And the director of operations at the time was a woman, Maureen Baginski. And 
it, you know, no one expected NSA to succeed, especially in the time frame in which it did. And Mo's position was so difficult. It was up to her to come up with the strategies of how we would do this, but more importantly, to coax a very uh, skeptical <laughs> and sometimes resistant workforce into making a lot of really important mental changes. And, um, you know, that would have been a difficult position. You know, a man was her second in, in command. Chris Inglis was her second. And it was really the two of them that made this almost impossible thing happen. And it's really hard to envision anyone else uh, being able to make that come about. Mo was, was quite extraordinary. Can you talk about the role though in collecting and in analyzing? Um, one thinks of, you know, men out in the field uh, around the world collecting information. Is it important to get women involved in that too because they're gonna have different sensibilities, different contacts, different perspectives? Well, let's let's take collection and analysis separately because they are two, two separate disciplines in a way. For analysis, you can see it very clearly because I think women, um, for, for one thing, we're used to being gatherers, right? We're used to going out and surveying broadly and then making decisions about what's the most important thing to us. I mean, I hate to be so stereotypical, but you can think about shopping, for instance, right? We're not just, oh, let's just get this over with and stick our hands in bins and, you know, whatever. Chances are most women have been sort of conditioned to evaluate more broadly. And you certainly see this in intelligence. You know, after 9-11, the WMD Commission and the 9-11 Commissions did these studies on the intelligence failures. And, you know, one of the things they pointed to was the danger of groupthink. And you really would see this at a place like CIA, which while there was consensus-driven uh, decision-making, you know, before you came up with any analytic judgment, usually, you, you know, you get the experts in the room and they all sort of talk it through, but you would often see that the most senior analyst, the most senior technical person on something would really push their opinion through. And more often than not, maybe it was just the time or the subject matter that I was involved in, a lot of times that would be men, right? They would, they would not want to be challenged. They would just dig in even more so when they were challenged. And I would say in my experience, you probably saw that a little less with women, that they were a little more used to um, trying to give uh, everybody a chance to be heard and then coming up with maybe a little bit more equitable way of coming to a decision as opposed to just ramming something through. So collection is a little different. It's um, and it depends a little bit on which intelligence discipline we're talking about. Like SIGINT is different than UMINT. Um, and I'm a little less familiar with the process for UMINT collection, but um, you know, I believe it has to do with you know, assessing your targets and making a decision over you know, which individual would have the best access and is most likely to, to allow himself or herself to be. Um, recruited, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas on the SIGIN side is very technical. And you'd be surprised there were almost as many women involved on the technical collection side as men. It, and I understand that continues today. I, I was just thinking on the collection side that, that uh, in much of the world, women uh, are not regarded in the same plane as men. And it might be difficult to go out into the field and make contacts and talk to people and be respected and it would be hard to go undercover in certain cultures. And if that closes off some avenues to women. 
you know, I would definitely say on the human side, that's probably true. And that they have to be a little more clever, perhaps about how they go about it, or they might end up picking different targets. I don't want to imply that like, you know, the whole honey trap sexual thing, right? That certainly happens on both sides. You know, case officers are usually a little bit more attractive than your average <laughs> individual because it helps. People will say more to attractive people. They'll be, they'll let their guard down a little bit. They'll want to impress. Which brings me actually back to your novel where both of the main characters are motivated to a certain extent by their hearts. One of them has crossed the, the lines of propriety by having an affair with somebody and somebody else is completely motivated by uh, and makes some, some bad decisions because of her heart. Yes. And, you know, I was a little, you know, with the one character, the Teresa character, which is the second one you're referring to, there's no way around it, right? That's the linchpin of the plot. It, she has to do this. For Lindsay, I was a little reluctant to make the, her weakness be that she decided she was going to kind of step outside the line and do something that's technically, um, you know, against the rules, which is to have an affair, have a relationship with a foreign national, not only a foreign national, but he is, uh, works for a foreign intelligence service. Now he works for the Brits who we often say might as well be Americans, right? So it's really not um, a big deviation. And, but part of the reason why I decided to do it is because you do hear these stories all the time where men will do something that they know is a flagrant violation and they do it knowing that they're not going to be called to task. Um, I've heard stories of case officers who've had affairs with the wives of uh, foreign intelligence chief of stations. Right. 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 <laughs> and um, but, you know, I, I can't think of any woman. I've never heard this, a similar story about a woman. And it just seems to be, you know, part of, of what we learn. And that is to be really, really careful. Don't break any rules because you're a little more vulnerable than maybe some of your coworkers. But what you're telling me about the uh, agencies is that there's a double standard for women. You know, I think there still is, again, probably a little bit more so at some agencies than others. Uh, not CIA, but another one I've worked for, I think has a, a real problem with this. Um, it has a lot of cultural issues and the people who work there know it, but it's not the kind of thing that is allowed to be spoken about openly. But yeah, I think, you know, and it, it's because also to an extent, you know, the agencies are a reflection of the societies they come from, right? And there still is a bias that exists against women. I mean, I'm not saying it's always a heavy bias, but it's just something that's been ingrained in our culture to, to just look at women a certain way. So uh, this problematic agency, I presume is the NSA, since that's the other agency <laughs> where you worked. And uh, one thinks about Silicon Valley mm -hmm. um, and all the problems there have been there relating to gender. Do those same things crop up at the NSA? Well, you know, NSA is, is much it's it's very much like a technology company and you know which means exactly it's run be by, bad for women 
Sometimes, yeah. I mean, it's run by engineers. It's run by computer scientists, fields that still I do think have perception issues when it comes to women. And, you know, women in the field really have an uphill battle for themselves. And it's not just um, a gender bias, though, I think at that agency, like a lot of technology companies, they find they have, you know, a racial bias. They find they have an age bias. Um, It's just something in the mindset. And I wonder sometimes if it does have to do with the the background. I mean, I worked with some brilliant, brilliant computer scientists, guys who at the time were actually younger than me. And the most crazy sexist things would come out of their mouths. And I'd say, where did you get this idea? And they'd tell me their professors, their professors would tell them things like the best woman engineer is worse than the worst male engineer. And they believed it. And Alma Katsu's novel, Red Widow, has now been optioned by Fox. So you may be seeing it on a screen sometime soon. That's great. Um, And it reflects a trend we're seeing in real life and in fiction in terms of women taking predominant roles in the intelligence agencies, our director of national intelligence, headed by a woman and so on. And we're seeing women star and spy series like the Bureau and Tehran and so forth. So it's an interesting trend. And don't forget Carrie on Homeland. (laughs) Who good? (laughs) (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of Spy Talk. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Jean Meserve. Next episode drops on May 6th. I'm Jeff Stein. Great to have you here. Come back again. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.